Welcome to Study Isaiah, the podcast where we examine the language, historical context, and meaning of the book of Isaiah with Dr. Paul Wegner. I'm Tyler Sanders, and across from me is Dr. Wegner, who is going to tell us the Hebrew word of the day. (laughs) I cheated today because instead of just one word, I give you a whole verse, but it's actually kind of neat. It's it's Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory is... To another, I will not give. That, that's the part I wanted to show you. My glory to another, I will not give. That's emphatic because it's so out of order. Um, you'd expect, I will not give my, uh, give my glory to another or something like that. But it's, it's, it's totally out of order. So it's, it's, and my glory to another, I will not give. So it's just emphatic. Um, and my praise to idols. So I just thought it was neat the way God said that and, and wanted to let you know, He's not sharing his glory with anybody. And so, especially not idols that he thinks are nothing. Okay, so what about this in the Hebrew indicates that, is it the word order? Yes. Is that what you mean, the emphasis? That's where the emphasis comes from? Yeah, it's harder to know in a, in a dependent phrase, which we have here. Usually it starts off with the verb, but this one clearly put the verb as far back from the uh, glory and uh, to another I, w- I will not give. He put it as far back as he could. So it seems like to me, it's really emphatically saying, I won't do that ever. Oh. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, low plus an imperfect often means I will, it's a permanent prohibition. I will never give my glory Mm. to another. That's great. Yeah. Can you pronounce it to us in Hebrew? Uh, The the, the phrase there? Oh, yeah. um, Kabodi la'ahre. So we said it again. It's kavodi. Mm-hmm. La Hare. La Hare. Kavodi La Hare. Uh-huh. That's great. <laughs> Two Hebrew words in a Hebrew phrase. And I cheated. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Let's talk about authorship. Before we okay. get too deep into the actual book, which we will. Okay. We will one day. <laughs> uh, but let's talk a little bit about authorship. That's a big discussion. That's mm. a discussion that when I was, uh, especially like a first year seminary student, I don't think I totally understood why it was so important. Mm. Maybe this is something other people will go through too. It's like, I, I think my, my first my first semester I was in a New Testament class, uh, but it was, you know, we're, uh, we're studying the gospels. We were probably, we did several weeks of lead up before we actually got into <laughs> yeah. the text. And I remember thinking like, why? what are we doing? Like, what, how's all this stuff so important? Then I learned, you know, how it all kind of fits together. You know, you have to work through those pieces. So I, all that to say, what do you think is important about authorship and Isaiah? Like, why is this something we need to know about before we get into the text? Sure. It seems like to me, it's probably crucial to know if God actually said something. Um, Isaiah, the book clearly suggests that Isaiah wrote it. The major problem is that there is a gap of 150 years between chapter 39 and 40. And so people have had to try to explain, well, how did that happen? In my mind, it's a theological issue. If God can't tell the future, then he's no different than the other gods or so-called gods. And in in Isaiah, he actually says in chapter 41, if if he can't tell the future, then, then he's a false god. Nobody should trust him. So if that's true, it's a theological issue. So the, the question is, did God actually prophesy and tell us that the, they were going to come back from Babylon? And if so, 
that's a long-term prophecy for them. Hmm. It's interesting. In, a, in the book of Isaiah, it actually has short-term prophecies so that you'd know whether Isaiah was really a prophet or not. Right. Then you've got these long-term prophecies, one that's 150 years in the future. And in, in the back, in the end of the book, it's even further clear into the future. Mm. And so if you can't trust Isaiah to be a man of God, giving this information for short-term, you certainly couldn't trust him for the long-term. So what happens is it, God gives these little short-term ones so that you know you can trust him for the long-term ones too. So I think I think it's a theological issue. We'll get into it, but I think yeah. that's where it really hangs on. Okay. Is it can God do this? Yeah. And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Right before we get into it, just for a quick reminder for all of our listeners, we'll be discussing dates uh, uh, a lot. A lot of times when we're discussing dates, we're discussing BC. Yeah. So if numbers sound a little out of order, there's a there's a reason. Uh there's a reason for that. Yeah. Okay, so to kick this off. I've got a question I got uh, from your commentary, actually. Okay. And one of the things you said is uh, there's recent scholarly interest in the literary unity in Isaiah, but they're not taking the idea of single authorship very seriously. Yeah. Can you tell me where that's coming from? Yeah. Hugh Williamson was the one that actually said it. I quoted it in my book. And he says in the last 30 so years that there's been a real interest on seeing how the book holds together and and what the overall message is. It's kind of funny because we are, that was kind of our goal all the way, way along. And now scholars are just starting to see that. But what happened is, is probably about 50 years ago, they tore it into such little pieces that you, you had no major themes running throughout mm. the book. It was just little bitsy pieces. Well, now it's starting to go back to say, well, there's got to be an overall theme or a message to the book as a whole. So that's more what they're examining than they have been in, in the past. And instead of breaking it down into little authentic parts and non-authentic parts and stuff like that, right. now they're trying to figure out, okay, how does this book hold together? Right. And and so even liberal scholars are, are more doing that than they've ever in the past. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. I, I think what I'm going to need to do, though, is show you some really important dates for the book of Isaiah. Yeah. Then when we start talking about how does this book hold together, mm. it'll make some sense. Okay. So what I tried to do is I tried to uh, give you what I figure are the key things that you need to know. First of all, Isaiah's call is about 740. In chapter 6, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So that gives us a starting time, and then it gives his what looks like his call. So yeah. I'm assuming that's probably the first thing that happened in the book. Then the Syro-Ephraimite War is 733 to 732. And that's actually crucial because what happened there is the northern kingdom in Syria came against Judah. And Judah then calls on Assyria for help. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, God warns him and says, if you do that, from now on, you're going to be under their their power, yeah. and pretty much that's what happened. Um, Samaria is destroyed in 722. From a, so about that time on, there's only a southern kingdom. There's no longer a northern kingdom. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Sennacherib's attack in 701 is really crucial to understanding, mainly why God is protecting you. Know, it's I think that's probably one of the most important passages where God actually steps in and delivers the nation. Mm-hmm. I think it was so that people would know that God can do it, even though later he's not going to do it because they've gotten so wicked. At this point, he actually steps in and actually protects them. Right. So now they know he can do it. The last event that Isaiah 
probably would have known about was um, in chapter 37, uh, where it talks about uh, Esarhaddon becoming king. His father dies and he becomes king. And that that's dated about 681. So that's probably about the last thing he would have seen in his lifetime. Okay. But that means that means he's prophesying for like 60 years. Yeah. That's a long that's yeah. a long time. Yeah. Then another crucial event is the Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. Even though the only thing that is there's one verse that tells about it and then the last thing is them returning from Babylon and that's pretty much chapters 40 to 66. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So those are the big picture things that I think are crucial for you to know. And the jump between Chapter 39 and 40 is where the big issue happens. That's why people have such a problem with the book. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're really covering about a 200, about 200 years really from Isaiah's call. Even more. Yeah. Yeah. A little more. Okay. What I want to do is I want to start off with this quote. This was from Wybray. All but the most conservative scholars now accept the hypothesis put forward by Doderlin in 1775, but already anticipated by Ibn Ezra in the 12th century. Now, first of all, that's not quite true. First of all, <laughs> I, I don't consider my, myself the, the most conservative scholar, <laughs> but I actually believe that, that Isaiah did write the book, okay? Um, and, and, and liberal scholars have argued that he did not. Okay, right. and it started back in the 1700s. I'll give you that, yeah. but I'm not convinced that Ibn Ezra in the 12th century believed that either. From yeah. what he, we can tell, that's not true. Okay. Anyway, um, these prophecies contained in chapters 40 through 66 of the Book of Isaiah are not the words of the 8th century prophet Isaiah, but came from a later time. See, in my mind, you got to ask the question: How could that happen? How could? Mm. How could? a part of a book that was written by somebody else get associated or joined to the prophet Isaiah. That, right. And and they claim that there's other examples of that, like apocryphal books, Judith, Second uh, Esdras, and stuff like that. But the problem with those is they knew those were not authoritative scripture. Right. So, so putting them on the same category as scripture, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. And some of the reasons they knew it wasn't biblical text is because they had errors in them. Yeah. Well, they haven't found those in the biblical text. Right, right. So anyway, that's part of anyway. Okay, let's keep going. A further hypothesis of Bernard Doom in 1892 that chapters 56 through 66 must be equally distinguished from chapters 40 through 55 has met with less unanimous agreement, but is nevertheless very widely widely accepted. Actually, that's not true anymore. When he wrote it in 1975, it was true. Most people don't believe that anymore. Probably the most common view is one held by um, Hugh Williamson. And he argues that the book of Isaiah started, you know, the the core started in in the eighth century prophet, but then it was added to by others and groups of people Maybe not groups of people, but other yeah. uh, editors all the way through. So yeah. it's it's not that there were three Isaiahs anymore. That's pretty. Un- that's most yeah. people don't agree with that yeah. anymore. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, all but the most conservative. That that really hurt me because I thought <laughs> wow. a little bit of a dig. <laughs> I believe what Scripture says. So now I'm one of the most conservative. <laughs> oh well, what can I say? <laughs> but that's that was in 1975. Hugh Williamson summarizes the direction of this study, and this one is more up to date. This was in 2009. The most noteworthy development in the study of the book Isaiah over the past two decades 
or so has been the rediscovery of the book's unity. That's what you were mentioning yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. This does not in the least mean, however, that scholars have reverted to the view that the view that the book was written by a single individual. While that position is still defended from time to time, it is more normal for a, for a view of overall literary unity to be held in conjunction with sometimes quite radical analysis of the history of the book's growth over two or three centuries, with many hands contributing to it. That's what the most standard view is today, is that there's been, the book has grown over time, mm -hmm. and he, he says even up to two or three years, or centuries later. Right. Which makes sense, because if, if he's in 700s, you want to get it after the exile so that you can prophesy right. these things, you know, instead yeah. of prophesying, saying, oh, yeah. look, here's what's this happening. Happened. Yeah. yeah. So that's what's going on. And and that's probably the most common view. And Hugh Williamson is one of the preeminent scholars on that. And is this mostly just like a response to the idea of like a miraculous prophecy is miraculous? It's some of that. Of? Uh, although Hugh Williamson doesn't believe that. Here, let me show you some of the arguments so that you can yeah. see how it de de developed. Uh, first, chapters 40 through 48 deal with the Israelites' return from Babylon after 539. Nobody doubts it. That's pretty much what it is, and would have little relevance to a people living in Israel in the 8th century BC. That's where I question it. My understanding is, if these people here in chapter 39, they're going to go into Babylonian captivity, and then they hear nothing else, the question then is, does our God still love us? Does he care right. for us? Do, right. do you know? Are we going to be wiped out forever? In actual fact, God's answer is no. I will bring you back and I will take care of you and I will save a remnant of you. Yeah. So so in my mind, that still has relevance to uh, an 8th century people who hears that God is going to bring them back from that captivity. And yeah. I think that's crucial. Yeah. Okay. So I yeah. disagree with that part. Okay. Okay. S.R. Driver dates the book between 549 and 538 because the conquest of Babylon is still in the future and the union of the Medes and the Persian appears to already have taken place. So they're trying to, because it talks about uh, God bringing a deliverer from media or, mm -hmm. from the north and stuff like that. So they, they know Cyrus is coming, you know, so that must mean it has to be about that time when he's, he's becoming popular and, okay. and strong. Okay, so so remember now he's thinking everything has to be to those people that he's talking to. Well, I don't believe that that's necessary. That's his logic, though. All right, the text does dis uh, also describes Jerusalem as ruined and deserted. Now remember that's that's an issue that's going to be important. He can he can prophesy these things that are going to take place, and they don't have to be. In them already. See, that's what uh, Driver is mm. arguing. If they're, if these things are happening and Jerusalem's in ruins, the only way they'd know that is if they they see it and if it's that time. Right. Okay. The temple has been uh, long in ruins. Okay, and the Jewish nation in exile in Babylon, despairing of ever being released. All of that's true, but I see it as future looking into it, not yeah. having it have to be there. Yeah. Okay, so that's number three. Number four, when considering these events, scholars generally argue it's unlikely that Isaiah could have taken such a lengthy futuristic standpoint to address people over a century in the future. They conclude, therefore, that the exile is presupposed rather than predicted. That's kind of their key thing. And my thing is, 
No, this is God telling them what's going to happen in the future so that they can be ready for it and know that God hasn't given up on them. Now, I think it's funny also, they're not consistent. They argue that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses, but written several hundred years later. And yet, it, if you read it, it certainly sounds like he's talking at that time. So if that's true, sure. how come Moses could do that, but Isaiah can't do that? Right. So it seems like to right. me they're not consistent. If 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 Moses, you know, either, either have Moses writing in the time that he's supposed to in the 1400s, right. or have Isaiah, you know, writing when he's supposed to. I just think it's inconsistent for them. Yeah. So I thought that's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> okay. Cyrus is mentioned. Now remember, that's specifically a person's name. That's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. 150 years in the future, God speaks and gives a specific name. Mm-hmm. So they argue that there's there's basically nothing else like that. Well, that's not actually true because if you remember Micah chapter 5 verse 2 actually says that this deliverer is going to be born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. That's a very specific place. Yeah. And so so in, in actual fact, it's very close to what's happening uh, with yeah. Cyrus being mentioned, I think. Yeah. So, and some people have a problem with Micah 5 too, but there it's, most of them will argue that that is him talking about a future deliverer. Yeah. So if that's true, then it seems like Isaiah ought to be able to do it too. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. They have a knowledge of Babylon. The detailed references to Babylon and its gods suggest some, to some scholars that the author is writing from Babylon during the time of the exile or later. Sometimes even specific events, like such as the return from Babylon, are referred to as past tense, as though they've already happened. And I talk about those as being a prophetic perfects, the idea that it's so certain that it's going to happen that God can put it in the past tense. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure that this actually is a good argument because if you think about it, even even in the eighth century, these guys would have had interactions with Babylon. Mm-hmm. So they would have known their gods and stuff like that. So just because it has a very detailed knowledge of Babylon. Right. Doesn't really mean that they're living there. But right. even if they were, that's fine. God can know these kind of things. Sure. Next one, unique literary style, themes, vocabularies. Uh, or vocabulary. Uh, scholars have pointed out the difference in vocabulary and style between the various parts of the book. For a good summary, SR Driver did that back in 1913. The words or phrases that are said to be found are repeated in Isaiah 44, but not in Isaiah 1 through 39. Huh. In actual fact, that's not true at all. Of the 10 words that they claimed only happened in the second right. part, all these other ones, you can actually find them in both parts of the book. So so at least about seven of them or however many there are, yeah. they actually do occur in both. But the, it seems like to me that when an author has a really good reason for stating a totally different theme, like mm. the difference between chapters 1 through 39 and 40 through 66, yeah. it would seem like they could they should use a different vocabulary. It wouldn't right. surprise me at all. But what I was surprised at is there's very few differences. Now, yeah. the phrases are different, like, I am the Lord, there is no other. But once again, if you think about it, that's what God's trying to prove in the second part. 
or I am I am the first and I am the last. Mm. Okay. Again, he's trying to show that I was with those people in the past when they when they were uh, right. back in the seven hundreds, and I'm going to be with them in the future when I bring them out of Babylon. Yeah. So I it, it, the ones that are there seem to me to make perfectly good sense as to why they're they're yeah. unique in that second part. Yeah. So I, this one in my mind is a pretty poor argument because in actual fact, very few of them. Yeah, <laughs> actually occur only in one spot. I think it's a diff- difficult argument yeah. to make because there's a lot of reasons. Yes. There's a ton of reasons, things that have nothing to, to have yeah. nothing to do with anything that a style could change. And if you think about it, John Roberts, is it, it, who's, I think, a brilliant scholar, says, argues that it's it's over 60 years. He, he prophesied for over 60 years. You can't expect him to have the same vocabulary over the whole period of his life. So, he, of course, you're going to see things different. And I thought, well, yeah, that's a pretty good point. Yeah. Have you ever read anything you wrote like five yeah, yeah, years yeah, right. ago? My goodness. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's that one. Um, Isaiah 40 through 48 is said to be characterized by the following stylistic features. Duplications of words to uh, signify impassioned ardor of of the preacher. Why this type of repetition is rare in Isaiah 1 through 39, it does happen like chapter 29, 1 has repetition. So it, that one is true, but I I think it's the context that, that suggests that those repetitions Mm -hmm. are more likely. Then they have differences in structure of sentences. Relative uh, particle is omitted with much greater frequency than the earlier parts of Isaiah. Hmm. Now, remember, I'm not necessarily convinced that Isaiah didn't use an amanuensis in the last part of it either. I mean, I have no problem arguing. You know, I mean, if, if Paul can use a scribe or somebody else, I would assume that Isaiah could too, even though Isaiah is a scribe. You know, I mean, he knows how to write because he, he, he's claimed to be a scribe. Yeah. So it would seem like to me it makes makes sense that if you had a, a uh, using a different amanuensis or something like that, it might have different words. Um, I just don't think I don't think there's enough differences that you can actually do that. Yeah. Okay. The style of Isaiah uh, 40 through 66 is much more flowing. The rhetoric is warm and impassioned. Once again. Exactly what I'd expect if you're if you're trying to convince these people that God is powerful enough to bring them out right. of Babylon. This so, is what they'll be holding on to while they're there. Exactly. Okay. So those are the kind of things I think are doubtful. Uh, not long ago, they tried a computer analysis. Mm. Um, a guy named Rade concluded that the book was not a unity. However. Uh, when he did that, he he actually argued that it had different divisions than than the ones that were earlier. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Then Adams and Ricker uh, in 1973 did the same test and found out it was a unity. And then <laughs> really? I think what I think what's going on is that there's such a little there's such a low vocabulary. There's not a lot in these. Yeah. And I think to get conclusive evidence on these you'd have to have you'd have to have a lot more vocabulary and a lot more similar kind of material which you don't have these conflicting finds can be attributed to difference in methodologies the limited amount of hebrew vocabulary examined and the inherent difficulties in developing analog rhythms to analyze complex language so in a guy named hosner in 1963 pointed out it's probably never going to happen. We'll never be able to to actually prove or even convincingly argue that there was two different authors. Computer analysis is just not going to work. Yeah. 
it's disappointing, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. All right. So that's that one. Traditionally, arguments for a single. Now let's go to single author. Okay. okay? Traditional arguments for a single author of the book come largely from early Jewish sources. The Talmud. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, one of the places in the Talmud actually states that Hezekiah and his men wrote, but it probably means edited mm. or compiled the book of Isaiah. And then Christian sources see specifically John 12, 38 through 41, where John introduces quotes from both Isaiah 6, 10 and Isaiah 53, 1 by saying, Isaiah says elsewhere, and this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating you, you to know, phrase to, it that to way. To take both of them. In fact, why don't we look at that passage? John 12. Okay, here's what it says. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and said, I'm sorry, and hid himself from them. Though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that's the Isaiah 6.10 passage. For this reason, they, they would not believe. For Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see in their eyes. And Oh, I'm sorry. The first part was Isaiah 53. And then okay. this, the second part now, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. This one is Isaiah 6.10. So he's taken both parts of Isaiah and, and sections of that and saying Isaiah uh, said these things. Yeah, right. So it seems like to me, he's, he's, it's pretty convincing that he's, he's believing that both parts were done by Isaiah. Yeah. So it seems like to me that's, that's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. All right, theological reasons. And I think this is the strongest one. Traditionally, Isaiah 40 through 66 has been understood as God's revelation to the nation of Israel concerning their future, given in order to encourage them. Even though they will experience adversity, they're going to go into the Babylonian captivity, God will ultimately keep his promises to them. God knows that this will ha is happening and will protect them through the adversity. In my mind, that's crucial. That's a theological issue that if God doesn't keep them and protect them in the exile, we've got a theological flaw, I think. It is interesting that that one aspect by which God chooses to use to differentiate himself from all other gods is his ability to tell the future, something no other God can do. Let me show you the verse. So here's, here's the passage. It's in Isaiah 41 or 21 through 24. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the King of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. So, so that's what he's first saying. I'm a historian. I could actually tell you the past events, right? Mm -hmm. So, But he doesn't mean that. What he means is, tell me those past events and tell me why you did them, right? Now, God can do that. Why did he bring the Israelites through the Red Sea and destroy the Egyptians? Well, to protect his people. Right. He wants to know, okay, if you're a God and if you have done these past events, tell me why you did them. Hmm. So that's, that's what he means when he says, tell me the past things. Or announce to us what is coming. Okay, that'd be the future things, yeah. all right? Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about and fear together. Now God's getting into mocking them, right? So he says, right. do anything, good or bad, and, we'll, you know, and, and I'll fear you too, okay? <laughs> Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Here's God saying that if you choose those idols that can't do anything, it's an abomination. Yeah. 
So if God can't tell the future or if God can't do these kind of things, then he's no different than the idols and choosing him would be an abomination. So theologically, I can't see how God can mock the false idols and still not be able to tell the future. That's my strongest argument. It seems like to me, God's making fun of people who can't do that. Yeah. Okay, it's ironic that one of the strongest arguments for second Isaiah put forth by Williamson does not question that God can tell the future. Hmm. Okay, so Hugh, Hugh William is one of the few that do that. Instead, he argues that if a prophet claims that things prophesied in the past have been accurately fulfilled, then it presupposes the validity of predictive prophecy. It also demands that the speaker should himself be located after the fulfillment of those predictions. Several times, God says to the nation of Israel that they will be his witnesses after these predicted events are fulfilled. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know that and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. It is I who declared and, and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses. See, several times he's saying, okay, Israel, you're going to be my witnesses. When these things happen, you're going to know that yeah. I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah. He's got a great point here. And it took me a long time to figure out where the flaw was. Mm. The flaw is that he's not speaking to one person. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. If he's speaking to the nation of Israel, there's going to be people alive at the time when the prophecy was given. There's also going to be people alive at the time that they're fulfilled. So he can say to the nation, you are my witnesses, because there were people all the way along there. That can cover several generations. Exactly. So it it took me a while to figure out why that was a a problem, because it makes it clear that Israel's going to be his witnesses. Yeah. So, and if he was talking to just one person, that'd be impossible. But seeing that he's talking to the nation, that is possible. Later in the same book, Williamson favorably quotes S.R. Driver. In the present prophecy, there is no prediction of the exile. The exile is not announced as something still future. It is presupposed. Now, remember, he's not talking about chapter 39 where it said it was going to happen. He's he's talking about 40 through 66, where yeah. in there, it sounds like they're, they're coming back from it. Right. And only the release from it is predicted. By analogy, therefore, mm. that which, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the author should have lived in the situation that he, he thus presupposes and to which he continually alludes. First of all, you've got to think, in my mind, it's kind of circular reasoning. You've already got to assume there's a division between chapter 39 and 40. If you look at chapter 39, it claims that Isaiah is the author and that he foresaw these things. So when you look at just chapters 40 through 66, he's arguing, no, those are living in a time when God's telling them they're going to come back. So he's saying those those are things are already presupposed. Yeah. They're not... It assumes that. this is the context, yeah. essentially. Now, here's the problem with that, is, is that far as I see it. Yeah. Driver's not even consistent. Once again, go back to Moses. He claims the JEDP theory and that Moses is not living in the time when he claims he is, but must be living later. Well, okay, why can't Isaiah foresee the future and have God telling him what things were taking place and then be able to, to explain them that way? And yeah. I also think it's important that he, he does it like they're presupposed. It's because that makes it more realistic so that when they actually are in Babylon, it's not going to be a real big surprise for them. They can go back to the book and say, oh, 
we were already told this was going to happen and right. that we're going to come out of this. Right. So it seems like to me, it is logical for a prophet to shoot himself in the future and, and give it very realistic terms like he's there and all that, but saying that God's going to get you out of this. I think yeah. that's the only real way that they're going to actually know that God can actually do this is if he makes it real realistic. Well, it makes it it makes that message specific to a moment or yeah. a series of moments, right? Yeah. You're here, but you haven't been released yet. But that's what we're talking about. I think so. There's going to be a release. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, Isaiah's lying, right? Because hmm. the way he pictures the book, it makes it sound like he's foretelling these things. And if he's not foretelling these things, then that's like Isaiah's lying, I think. Right. I've had a real problem with that. Yeah. Seems like Driver is very inconsistent. It suits his purpose is the reason. Right. All right. This argument seems to be circular reasoning for the book of Isaiah in its present form suggests that the 8th century prophet wrote the book and that God is predicting that the nation of Israel will return from the Babylonian exile. Thus, his assumption that it presupposes an exilic setting is answered by the book itself in that God predicts these events. Hmm. Yeah. If you only take part of the book, I can understand what he's doing. But if you read it as it, if it lays out. Yeah. It's it's saying that God foretold these things. Right. When was Driver writing this? And back in the 1900, uh, turn of the century, 1913, yeah. something like that. Do you know, like, how are other scholars responding to him today? Now with the idea of more unity, you know, a literary unity yeah. across the book, is there any... You know what? They still use as a foundation a lot of the stuff mm. him... Uh, even Hugh Williamson is going to use Driver as a foundation okay. and then argue that, no, then it must be somebody later who's yeah. editing this book. Okay. Yeah. So these arguments have been pretty strong. Yeah. Even though Hugh does not believe in, you know, that God can't tell the future, a good share of them did. And that's why it became so popular. Yeah. Okay. Similar wording or phrases. Some scholars have argued for a single author based on similar wording across the book, like mm. the title, The Holy One of Israel. That occurs 12 times in the first part of the book and 13 times in the second part. Mm. And so it's interesting. That's a title. My only problem with that is that if I was, if I really was an editor and I was, and I was trying to make it look like Isaiah wrote the whole thing, I would use, I would, yeah, that'd I would be take, an easy way to do it. Yeah, yeah. That, would, that would do it. So, yeah. so I don't believe that's a very strong one. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, it's similar to pre-exilic prophets. As mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, the headings in the books of Isaiah are similar wording and structure to the other pre-exilic books. And that's, I think, pretty strong. Clearly in the heading, it tells you when these kings live and stuff like that. Right. So, so it's making it pretty clear even the way they do it is very similar to like Micah or some of the other books that are in that early time period all right canonicity to book here's another what I would say a big one um, traditionally Isaiah Isaiahic authorship was assumed by witnesses both Jewish Christian but two critical theories of canonicity are that the book was written by a prophet and that it claims to come from God's okay that's my logic, okay? Yeah. Modern scholars have been fairly willing to accept the possibility that other authors or redactors added to the prophetic works without jeopardizing their authoritative stature. Charlesworth was one of the main ones, but he was arguing for pseudepigraphal books, which are books that were never in the canon. Yeah. 
And that's where I think it's different because that was one of the arguments against them being right. part of the canon was yeah. that they were written by people who they didn't claim to be written by. Yeah. So, so it seems like to me, he's taking oranges and apples. We're yeah. taking books that aren't even similar and arguing that, oh, look, because it can happen here, it can happen to these ones. Well, right. they knew these were different books. And part of the reason was is because they knew they weren't written by the person they claimed to be. Right. First of all, how can a, a book get joined together with parts from another person seems really odd to me. Yeah. But then to argue from a pseudepigrapha is a, is a lousy argument. Yeah, because it basically means no one could have known yeah. this. Yeah. But they knew it about other things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one other is interesting is Beckwith uh, has some really strong arguments to show that just isn't possible. It just won't happen. Part of, part of his logic was, look at the pseudepigrapha. They knew those were, were not yeah. part of the canon. Right. And, it, and the reason they knew it wasn't part of the canon was because they right. would claim to be authored by somebody who didn't write them. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Over a dozen times in the book, the book claims to be from Isaiah. Isaiah either had this vision or a couple of places he's told to wrote, write things down. And then in chapter six uh, through nine in that section there, it's in a lot of it's in first person. Mm. A lot of people argue that that's got to at least probably from Isaiah. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, content of Isaiah. Moitier argues that some of the wording is not in line with Babylonian setting. The idolaters go into the woods to cut a tree for carving, not possible in Babylonia. Mm. Um, remember, there aren't many trees in Babylon anyway. They, they actually had to, that's part of the reason they went to Lebanon is they needed to get <laughs> building materials. Okay. These trees are in pa the, the ones that Palestine know, knows. And the oils are those of the uh, Western Asia. The landscapes and climates are those of the West. Mountains, forests, trees, snow, land refreshed by rain and not by irrigation. Those are not Babylonian cultural yeah. images. They're more from Palestine. Yeah. So he, I think he's got a decent point there. Yeah, that's pretty clever. Also, Isaiah 40, 20 suggests that the idol makers choose wood that will not rot. Trees that, uh, that are naturally do not rot would be like cypress, redwood, white mm -hmm. oak, those kind of things, juniper, cedars. Most of those are found in Israel, but not in Babylon. That caused some people to argue that Deuteronomy lived in Palestine, though this is not really very common anymore. All right. They talked about idolatry. When the Israelites came back from Babylon, idolatry was not a problem. When we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, the bigger problems are intermarrying with other people, usury, stuff like that. Not not idolatry and yeah. not the kind of idolatry that was in pre-exilic uh, where it talks about them going up on the high places mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Well, in Babylon, they had idolatry, but it was more worshiping the sun and moon and stars like that. So it seems like that it's a different kind of idolatry that's talked about in this part of Isaiah. Yeah. So it seems like to me, that's a pretty good argument. If idolatry wasn't a major problem in this, when they came back from the exile, then why does Isaiah mention it so often? I think it's like right. 12 times he mentions right. idolatry. I'm going, wow, that's, that's a big problem. It sounds like they yeah. get, he keeps bringing it up and it's not the kind of idolatry that they had in, in Babylon. Right. So I think both of those are pretty strong arguments. Yeah. I actually, yeah. uh, Norman Wybray, the person, uh, that I quoted earlier, oh, yeah. I was at a, a old Testament conference with him once and he was reading a paper on Isaiah and I asked him about why idolatry was such a problem in second Isaiah when, Post-exilic didn't seem to have that problem. And his logic, and he said to me, 
obviously it was because Isaiah, Isaiah talks about it so much. And I'm going, he didn't even catch that, but that was just like circular reasoning. Right. It, it's it's right. got to be there because yeah. because I, second Isaiah has got to be post-exilic. Well, right. in my mind, it doesn't got, have to be. And so it was circular reasoning yeah. to me and he didn't catch it. So, and I didn't bring it up. Yeah, you so. didn't push that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Um, New Testament evidence. There are several New Testament authors that quote from various parts of Isaiah and acknowledge that the words come come from Isaiah. Now, and it's more than just saying from the book of Isaiah. A lot of times, like like in Acts uh, 28, 25, the Holy Spirit spoke truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet. That's not just saying that that's in the book of Isaiah. That's, right. that's him speaking through Isaiah. So it seems like it's a lot more specific than just being in the book of Isaiah. Yeah, same thing in John 12 we looked at earlier. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. Conclusion. All right. As Smith clearly observes, it is not crucial to know the certainty of who had the pen in his hand, Isaiah or a scribe. The introductions in the book of Isaiah suggest that Isaiah had the visions, but not necessarily that he recorded them all. It doesn't ever really say he wrote them down. Hmm. Okay. That's where that Baba Bethra, which says that Hezekiah might have edited and his men might have edited them. Yeah. It could be noted, though, that Isaiah is said to be a royal scribe and therefore would have been skilled at both reading and writing. It's funny. Isaiah and Moses, two of the people that we know were trained in writing. Egypt, Moses gets his training in Egypt, yeah. a pharaoh, so he, he had to have an awful good training. Two of, the pe- two of the people that were probably the most likely being able to, writ- to write, people have seem to have the most problem with these people. Right. Which right. I think is funny. That is, yeah. Oh, well. Later, the chronicler calls the book the vision of the prophet Isaiah. So he's clearly linking it with Isaiah. Not, yeah. Even if he's not saying he wrote it, he's, he's saying he had the vision. Yeah. So yeah. I think those are pretty convincing arguments. Are there any of them you want to talk more about? I had one more, oh, okay. one more question, actually. One more Okay. phase of this. I think we mentioned it. We may have mentioned it last week. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the scrolls at uh, Qumran. Oh, okay. That there was like a, uh, there's a break between chapters 33 and 34, a three-line break, yeah. right? And that's like the middle in terms of word count, right? That'd yeah. be like the exact center. Well, at least it's cl- real close. Or close to that? Yeah. Okay. The idea was that potentially they did that because it wouldn't fit on a whole yeah. You couldn't get all of Isaiah on one scroll or something. Is that right? But then we found at Qumran there wasn't a time. Yeah. I, yeah. The Isaiah scroll is all is all on one roll. So it is possible to get it on there. So the question is, why did he do that? And I, I think it's probably more for the logic of breaking it up into halves. Mm. Even though he could still get it all on one scroll, it's letting you know this is about the middle of the book. Yeah. It is interesting. It's not after chapter 39. Right. Where you'd expect it if it was a, if that was a natural break. It's not right. there. Right. So, I mean, and what does that tell us that they probably saw this as a united book? I would think so. Or um, could say that, I guess. Yeah. You know, by that time, that's in the, uh, you know, it was written in about 100 B.C. By that time, I don't think there's any doubt that it's all put together you yeah. know it, it seems like they most people would try to argue that earlier it was being joined and stuff like that but by first century bc there doesn't seem to be any doubt that yeah. it's seen one as one book yeah one scroll yeah yeah well uh i have another quote from i think it's from your commentary actually in here you said the heart of this dilemma is a theological issue not simply a literary one 
Can Israel's God know and control the future? And you got into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if you could kind of go over that one more time for do, us. Do you remember that verse um, in chapter 41 where God's mocking the false gods? Yeah. And if he, if he can't do what he, he claims he's mocking them for doing, then it seems like to me no one should trust him either. So, so I think that, that's why I think it's a theological issue. Can this God do what he claims he can or can he? It's about the nature of God, essentially. Yeah. 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 And so it goes back to the logic of, can he do this? Now, Hugh Williamson doesn't doubt that God could do this and that he can predict the future and stuff like that. But he argues that these things, uh, you know, to be witnesses, you have to be after the fact to what, to, to know they actually happened. Yeah. But th- I've argued that's not a very good argument because we're talking to a nation. Because the nation of Israel is going to go there and even well past the exile, right, when they come back. It, when you get to chapter f- like 55 onto 65, and he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. If Israel can't trust his God, their God to get them back from the exile, how right. are they going to trust him to bring this time of, of victory or this deliverance so much so that that righteousness is filling the earth and stuff like that? How How's that going to happen if their God can't even get them out of Babylonian captivity? Yeah. So it seems like to me this is a bigger picture. Can you trust the God that you serve? Yeah. Or can't you? Yeah. And and it seems like everything in the book of Isaiah is saying, of course you can trust him. Here's and here's reason after reason after reason as to why you can trust him. First, I'm gonna get you out of Babylon. Then I'm gonna have Cyrus build your temple for you. All of these things that he's gonna have happen. And as they're watching him going, man, if if he can do that, I'm sure he can do the next step and, and deliver us yeah. and bring righteousness on the earth too. And earlier you said predict the future, but it may be, it's probably more, would you say it's more, it's like determining oh, the future? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, for us, He's, it's yeah, like he's Isaiah predicting, is predicting it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or maybe in our kind of yeah, yeah. temporal. Yeah, but yeah. in God's mind, he's just determining what's going to happen. Right. That's great. <laughs> All right, one more question. Okay. Do you think the authorship of Isaiah affects how we view the rest of Scripture? Uh-huh. Is this a crucial thing for us to understand as we approach the whole rest of the Bible? Man, I've always thought it it does. And that's why I have to tell you, I'm in the minority that Isaiah actually wrote the book. There's not a there's some of us out there, but there aren't a lot. You, you heard what Williamson said. But it seems like to me that if if this was a story that was made to look like their God could tell the future, but he really can't, then I would. I think it's going to affect the rest of Scripture, too. seems like to me, then, this God is not as—in fact, it seems like he's a deceptive God, even, because the way he has Isaiah explain it makes it sound like he can tell the future, that he's going to bring Cyrus and all that. If he really didn't do that— then I have a problem with knowing what kind of a God do they serve. Mm-hmm. Is he really a truthful God? Is he, or is he deceptive? And even if he let Isaiah write part of it and then had another author write some of it so that it made it look like God foretold the future, I got a real problem with that. And I think yeah. that's going to affect the rest of Scripture too. Yeah. Book of Revelation. If I can't, mm-hmm. if I can't trust him in Isaiah... Can I trust him for those future things in the book of Revelation? Well, and maybe even instances in the New Testament that refer back to Isaiah. Yeah. That complicates that relationship. I would think so. A lot, I would imagine. Yeah. So I believe the answer is yes. I think it's going to affect how you understand this God 
who claims to be able to do these things if he can't really do them. Yeah. Well, I think we'll get into that even more when we get into the, the book, text. Yeah. 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 I think we'll see a lot of examples of that. As we normally do, for more reading, okay. we talked about a lot of different you know, scholars who've yeah. written about this and talked about this. Yeah. If a person's interested in knowing more, where, where should they go? Who should they read? I, I think there's two that are uh, more in what I call my camp. <laughs> there's more than that. But John Oswald has written a brilliant scholar. You know, he's a brilliant scholar, and he's written a um, two-volume work on Isaiah. Hmm. Um, and it's been out there since 1979, I think, and, and the first part and then later. But he's done a great job and, and, and holds the views that we do. Another one would be um, uh, Gary Smith. His commentary would be another one that would hold our kind of views. And then a third scholar would be the one that did the Tyndale commentary before me, Moitier. Mm. He definitely holds Isaiah authorship. So so there are still some good commentaries out there that hold uh, that Isaiah wrote the book. Okay. Well, it's very helpful. Thank you so much again for your time and thank you for listening and be sure to join us next time as we study Isaiah.